Hello, everybody. This is Kurt Bittner, and I'm standing in for Dave West today on the Scrum.org Community Podcast. And we have, actually, this is an outgrowth of a conversation that um, my fellow podcasters, Peter and Thomas, had a couple of weeks ago, and we thought, hey, this is really interesting. Let's let's expose this to a broader audience and talk about some interesting topics. And our topic today, we're going to talk about uh, agility and software architecture and try to figure out how, how agility and software architecture fit together. Are they complementary? Are they competitive? Are they complete anathema? Um, so with that, before we get started, um, so I'm, again, Kurt Bittner. I've been with Scrum.org for, I don't know, um, probably what, since 2016, but uh, after a long, uh, long period in the industry. And my interests at Scrum.org have mostly to do with scaling agility to enterprises and leadership and various topics. And so I think architecture fits really well into that. And we'll talk about why I think that and why Peter and Thomas think that. But uh, Peter and Thomas, why don't you introduce yourselves? Yeah, awesome. Uh, I can start. Um, my name is Peter. Um, I'm a software developer. I've been in the industry for the past 20 and a bit years. Um, I have um, mostly worked in agile teams, um, working with Scrum. Um, and uh, I'm a professional Scrum trainer. Uh, I've been a professional Scrum trainer for the past, I think, for the past 10 years, since 2012. Yeah, and I'm Thomas. Um, I also a Scrum trainer since 2010 now. Um, I'm with Scrum.org. Um, my favorite training is the APSSD class, um, which is all about um, how to really apply software development practices uh, in a Scrum context. And um, as Peter, I'm really passionate about software development, all the technology stuff, uh, what you can really achieve and how you can, uh, can tie these uh, things into an agile environment to really build great stuff. And yeah, software architecture definitely is a very important topic in this area. And it is something I really love talking about because I hear so many misconceptions about this. And I hope that we can create some more clarity around the topic uh, during this podcast. Uh, Peter, before I mean, Thomas, before we go uh, further, maybe you could expand the acronym APSSD. <laughs> oh, yeah, it, it, is, it is even a long acronym. It stands for Applying Professional Scrum uh, for Software Development. That means it is uh, a training Scrum.org offers with a very distinct perspective on software development and how to apply Scrum in this context. Great, great. Um, to start off our conversation, and this is where we started on the phone a couple of weeks ago, um, that it always seems to me that architecture is regarded by many people as a kind of taboo subject for Agile teams. Um, and I'm wondering what your opinion is, is that, you know, how did software architecture come to be so unappreciated by teams? What are, are they missing something? Because I know all of us think it's important, but a lot of people don't share that opinion. And I'm curious what you think, um, you know, how did we end up there? You know, what, what are people missing? 
I think um, it is a, a problem that we created ourselves. Um, we, meaning uh, Scrum practitioners and, and agile teams uh, and, and people working in agile teams, um, because often we hear of a concept or we read of a concept, um, but we don't really read the article. We just read the headline. Um, and I think when people uh, read about emergent architecture um, and uh, they read about iterative incrementally building software um, and, and continuously improving that, they um, incorrectly assumed that software will, uh, software architecture will just emerge from nothing. So, um, and I think that's a big misconception. And it is, um, in, in my opinion, it's more like a counter movement uh, to the very strict uh, uh, software architectural uh, practices uh, from 20 plus years ago, where uh, we had uh, like these big phases where we did analysis and design, um, and we made all these charts and how to, uh, how to, to cut off the building blocks of our software. Um, and we assumed, um, or many people assumed, uh, that software architecture will just take care of itself, which is true. Some, some architecture will emerge, but it, it will most probably not be the software architecture you want to have. And yeah, that, that's a really interesting. Oh, go, go ahead, Thomas. Yeah. Just to, to, to add on what Peter just said, I think in, in the old days, it was exactly that we uh, tried to design a software art architecture that is uh, a perfect fit for the software that we are building for the problems that we are solving here. And that was uh, great for the, the old waterfall approaches because um, that required that we know all the requirements for the software upfront before we can come up with a great software architecture before we start implementing it. So once we transitioned in an agile way of, uh, way of working and planning, um, we agreed that we cannot know all the requirements up front. And I think that is probably a huge challenge that uh, emerged there to say, okay, how can we then create the perfect software architecture for a software product if we even don't know all the requirements? And I think that is probably a, a, a big change. Uh, it, at least it was a big change for me to really realize that we have to think of a different type of software architecture when we work in an agile way. It is probably less on finding the perfect software architecture to solve a specific problem. It is more building software architecture that is evolvable over time that allows us to adjust to ever-changing requirements. And um, I think that step is probably also part of the, the problem. Yeah. Um, the other thing I think that is also, I agree with what both of you say, and, and, and the other misconception I think is, is even with that older conception of software architecture, because the belief that you can somehow take a set of requirements and come up with a purpose, per, perfect solution without actually building and testing something is a fallacy. And so, you know, when, when we used to build systems, um, and I have to maybe have the disclaimer that I've never actually worked on a waterfall project, even going back to the early 1980s. I was always building things incrementally and iteratively. And part of the reason for that was that I was doing things you know, on, on hardware that had just come out. Um, I was doing things with 
you know, in problem domains that weren't really well defined. And so the only way to do it, the only way to, to successfully build something was to build it incrementally, test it and, and keep refining that. Um, but in the process of doing that, I, I discovered some of the problems with emergent architecture um, of my own because the, 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 for me that the essence of architecture is not about what we used to think of as diagrams and you know, architectural review meetings and, and other kinds of things like that. It, it actually is the decisions that you're making about what you're building and how you're going to do that. And so I, I've always found that you, you couldn't make those decisions without the kind of information you get from building a little bit of it and then testing it out and then evaluating your assumptions. And so that, that notion that architecture is about decisions is something I've, I've been writing about lately. But I think it's, it's an interesting thing to build on uh, a couple of things that you both said. Um, you know, Peter, your, your comment about you know, you always have an architecture. The question of whether it's good or not is, is sort of the, the thing that you're trying to achieve. Um, and, and I think out of, out of building something, you can figure out whether it's good or not. And, and so I, I tend to think of traditional architecture as being a lot of unproven assumptions about how things are going to work. Um, and the only way to test those assumptions is to build a little, a little bit of it, not all of it. Um, but build a little bit, little bit of it. And so for me, I, I find that, that there's a perfect fit between agile processes and Scrum and architecture because, what, you know, how, I mean, Scrum basically says you need to produce something valuable and working every, every single sprint. Well, you know, here's your opportunity to build a little bit of the solution and test some of your ideas. Um, so I, I, I think that um, that's, and it, for me, it's not so much that, actually it's the opposite of architecture and, and agile don't fit together. It's like they fit together perfectly, but it's because of a mis misconception about what architecture is and how you do it. Um, so I, I, I don't know, I, what have your experiences been with that? I would, I would like to, to, um, to pile on top of that because um, the, the one thing you said about decision-making um, this is the, uh, the, the core of architecture in my understanding as well. But the question is, I mean, when we, when we create software, we make decisions all the time. So the question is, um, what, what is architecture? What, how is architecture different from all of these normal decisions that we take? Um, and um, when, when I think about that, um, I always uh, use a very loose definition. Um, um, and, and this says um, architecture is about the important things. I think Martin Fowler said something like that. Uh, um, and I really like that um, because um, it's about those things that have a, a high risk uh, or a high cost of change if we need to reevaluate them, if we need to redo them. And, um, and I think that, that these... Um, types of decisions qualify as architectural decisions. And then the question is, I mean, when do we, when do we decide on these important things, whatever important means? Um, and in my opinion, uh, there is something that is quite uh, unappreciated in most uh, Scrum teams in my, uh, um, from, from my experience. It is that the product owner has a very, very important part when it comes to uh, software architecture because it always starts with uh, what is the vision of the product? 
what is the most important or what are the most important one, two, three, maybe five quality criteria or quality goals that we want to achieve. And then we optimize our important decisions on reaching these goals. And in my opinion, this is something that many product owners um, uh, do not appreciate enough. Many scrum teams do not appreciate it enough. And I would like to, um, to, to, to have and, and work with product owners who are more interested in what is the vision, what are the quality goals, um, and, and then what, what type of architecture do I get? Because architecture is not something that is hype driven or that is uh, um, where, where we use the technologies that are currently on vogue. Um, architecture and the software architecture in, in particular is something that is dedicated to solving a concrete problem um, to reach a, a specific quality goal or quality criteria. And, and I really liked uh, the part uh, where you were talking about the validation because I, I couldn't agree more that uh, all those decisions we are making are based on various assumptions and those assumptions can be true or wrong. And the validation part is uh, really important. And I have been on traditional waterfall projects, and I can I can really, if I think back to those days, it was very very late in the project when we were really able to validate those assumptions. And it it is I think by nature in the traditional waterfall you try to prepare all the decisions. Uh, with a lot of analysis, thinking around it. So your expectation is that you have considered everything, which is, in fact, it is impossible, in my opinion. That is probably the, the big misleading idea behind the traditional waterfall that we can, if we plan carefully enough, we can um, uh, come up with all the details that we have to take into account and if we later find out that we took wrong decisions, then probably uh, our planning was not good enough. We should do better planning next time and then it will work. And that was probably the biggest misconception in the old waterfall days. And I think it is exactly what you said that we have to validate those assumptions and course correct as early as possible in our um, development cycle. And that is only true if we are actually building software, if we are building working software. And that is the essence of Agile and Scrum, for example, that we in small increments have something where we can validate assumptions. And this is not only assumptions in regards to the to requirements or business value, but also our technical assumptions in regards to software architecture. Yeah, there, there are a lot of interesting things in, in what both of you said. Um, I think one of the misconceptions that people have about architecture is that, that you know, in a sense, you know, if we think about the suitability for Agile, we often talk about that we're dealing with problems in the complex domain. And architecture, especially in today's world, is, is especially complex because there, there are very complex interactions between user workloads, response times, memory, throughput on networks, latency of networks, um, you know, compute power, you know, use of all these different components and services from different vendors. It's not predictable at all. 
And, and all those parts you're mentioning are changing all the time. So right. it's not a stable system inside. We are planning and building stuff. Um, it's it's all changing uh, all the time, and that even increases the complexity, I guess. And, and the interesting thing about um, something tying that into something that uh, Peter mentioned is this notion of quality goals, or in some of the writings I've been doing with uh, another colleague, uh, Pierre Pureur, um, we've been talking about quality attribute requirements. But what that basically means is that, you know, what are our goals for you know, response times and for number of users and for throughput and for, you know, even some things like, like the, you know, the, the maintainability of the system and the supportability system and resiliency. So oftentimes these architectural qualities, you know, you talk about illities um, in English um, and, and, and that, that notion of having quality goals and that the architecture is focused on quality goals and, and the functional requirements are focused on maybe more behavioral goals of the system, um, I think is an interesting addition for people. And I find a lot of scrum teams don't necessarily um, even think of quality goals, but that, you know, to, to both of your points, that's, that should be something that the product owner is very concerned about and maybe even puts those things on the product backlog um, to say, you know, um, but th there was another thing I wanted to add in addition to that and that, um, there's an interesting concept called the last responsible moment, um, because you know that saying we have to meet all these quality goals might lead some people to say, oh, we're going to spend our first, you know, five sprints dealing with quality goals, and then we'll deal with product, back, you know, the the more functional requirements, and and that's not that's not right either, because what we need to do is that we want to postpone decisions as long as we can, but in a responsible way, so that you know the question each sprint is like okay, here's this quality goal. Is, it, is anything that we would do in this sprint going to potentially lock us into a particular solution or maybe prevent us from achieving this quality goal? And if the answer is no, nothing we'll do in this sprint would, would lock us in, we still have complete freedom on that, great, then we don't have to deal with that right now. But if, if you say no, we're, you know, in order to, to achieve this particular product backlog item or this group of things or maybe the sprint goal, we're going to have to deal with that latency issue to, to pick an example, then, um, then okay, that's going to have to, you're going to have to do some architectural work in that sprint to, to do that because the cost of delaying that decision is too high. Um, you know, you might, you might have to rewrite everything. You know, if you find out a different answer, you know, five sprints on, you might have to rewrite everything you've done up to that point. And that would be very responsible. So I, I think that notion of quality goals and then thinking about what's the last responsible moment or, or you know, do we absolutely have to handle this issue in this sprint in order to have a sustainable solution? Um, and, and using that as a filter on, on the sprint planning is I think a really interesting way to think about doing the architectural work instead of loading it all up front. Um, because sometimes, you know, you, there, there's an interesting interaction between between functional requirements and then and those non-functional or architectural quality goals is that um, is that sometimes in order to achieve a particular you know sort of user-oriented outcome, you've got to solve some particular architectural problem. And so the, the two of them interact. It's not like you can deal with all the quality goals first and then, and that was sort of the, I think the problem with with the waterfall approach to architectures that they, you know, they tried to solve all the quality goal problems first in some big design 
and then build the functional things on top of it. And what you usually found out, as Thomas, you mentioned, is that some of your assumptions turned out to be false and that causes you to completely rethink. And the later you find that out, usually the worse it is. And, and I think this quality goals also play a very important role in the, in the validation part. They allow you to close the feedback loop because if you want to validate the decisions you made in terms to your software architecture, you have to come up with specific questions. Um, did this decision make our uh, system now more resilient, uh, more secure, more maintainable, whatever your quality goals are. And those quality goals give you the, the right questions to ask to validate your architecture decisions. And I think that is probably even a, an opportunity where you cannot only involve the product owner in this kind of conversations, we could even go one step further and include our stakeholders in this to say, okay, we have now changed over probably a course of, uh, of a couple of weeks, this architecture things. Do you feel that this brought us closer to the quality goals? Does it feel better to you? And what are the, the next goals that we should focus on? Where should we try to make the, the most improvement into? And for example, that could be an amazing conversation during a sprint review uh, to come up with this kind of discussions. If you just share with your stakeholders that you choose platform A over B because of this and that technical reasons, there will not be a, a, a conversations uh, with them. But as soon as we bring in those quality goals, we, we find a connection between the technical world and the business world. And that is what the quality goals really do for me. And I, what, I, what I really like about this idea to bring it back to the product owner and to the stakeholder um, or stakeholders is that um, we can also talk about the trade-offs that we have to make. Because um, if I ask my, uh, my customers, do you want to have it secure? Yes. You want to have it maintainable? Of course. Do you want to have it reliable? Of course. Do you want to have it performance efficient? Yes, I want to have that. Do you want to have it functionally correct? Yes, I also want that. Um, so if I give them a catalog with all these illities, they want all of that. But the question is, if we if we make it a bit more performant, if we if we improve our resource utilization, but that in that impedes our maintainability, is that all right? So do we want to take that trade-off? Um, and this is something that I really like discussing because this is often, it's a business decision. Um, it's not a technical decision. Um, it's a decision that we have to make with the stakeholders, with the product owner, most probably. Um, and I really like this type of conversation because it makes it more graspable. Um, Shell has introduced um, scenario-based um, uh, um, uh, modeling in the 80s, um, they have um, they have used it for many different things. To, for example, to to model the uh, um, the the, the uh, climate change uh, um, or to model uh, um, a political uh, um, development um, in different countries. Um, and the interesting thing about the scenario is that it makes something abstract concrete. If I talk about maintainability. I, I, can, I can wholeheartedly say, yes, I want to have it maintainable. 
But if I have to make it concrete and make it clear, what, what is this maintainability that you're talking about? Um, then I need to find a concrete scenario. And this is something that really helps in, um, in talking about this. So if, if I say, um, we would like to be able to, um, to add a new language to our website um, in, within at most five working days, and this should be, a, should, should be mostly done by one person. So this is a concrete scenario. And then I can look at the decisions that I have made uh, in, in my the important decisions. I can look at them and I can figure out or I can think about um, if, if I think it plausible and probable that we will be able to make that uh, um, quality goal or, or scenario. Um, and if not, then we have to, maybe we have to adapt something, we have to change something. I really like that. And one thing that I think is, is important too on the quality goals is that, is that they're not binary, is that it's not, it's not performant or not performant. It's, you have to be very specific about what you mean by performant, what you mean by responsive, what you mean by maintainable. And those scenarios help you to be more specific about that. And then uh, back to Thomas's point about validation, you, can, you could validate that, okay, during the sprint, we tested that scenario, it, you know, we, we ran through and we, we made the kind of, let, let's say that you, you want to make the system very, you know, maintainable for certain kinds of changes, like, like changing language or adding a language, then you could actually say, well, during our sprint, we actually did that. We added a new language. Um, and th this was what the cost was. This is what the outcome was. And then you can present that information to the stakeholders and say, okay, is that, does that meet your quality goals for the product and you know that then you can evaluate and say well you know maybe it mostly did but you need to make some changes in the next sprint or in a, in a future sprint it may not be the the next one might not be the right time to do that but that being specific about the quality goals making it measurable and actually using the work that you do during the sprint to gather information about whether you're meeting the quality goals instead of having it be a subjective um you know so often those architectural quality goals are are are, are subjective, um, and it, and they shouldn't be. They should be very precise. Um, and 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 if they're not, then there's some more work that you know, might be a good opportunity for refinement. Um, for example, um, to to refine the goals. Um, so um, we have probably only maybe five or so minutes left, and we we I know we, the three of us could go on for hours. <laughs> and it would be really fun, although we probably would need to do it over a beer and, you know, somewhere in Germany. Um, but the, I think an interesting thing to, to maybe wrap up with is, you know, if, if most scrum teams today are not really embracing this architectural work, and we've talked about some, some ways that they might be able to do that, but, you know, do you have any advice for those teams about how to get started, um, how, how to start incorporating the architectural work into the work that they do in the sprint. Because, you know, uh, most teams that I've run into, um, they have too much work to do in the sprint anyway. They, they have trouble, um, you know, really scoping the work enough so that they get it done and, and produce the working increment. And now we're, we're asking them to add a bit more, but is there a way for them to basically do the architectural work uh, in, in a way that doesn't um, put all the other things they need to do completely to, to the side. I, I probably want to start with a slightly different angle to it because I think you're absolutely right. 
one of uh, the big misconceptions I see and I get this question frequently is, um, wh why isn't there an architecture role defined in Scrum? So if we don't define a role for it, then probably it's not important. And that's probably one of the, the reasons why people think, well, then we don't do architecture, it just emerges magically or whatever. So, and, and I think, and that ties again back to the quality calls uh, that we talked about. Um, in, in my understanding, I would say that the developers on a Scrum team, they are software architects and they should make all these architecture decisions but they do not do it in isolation, but the, the quality goals that come from the stakeholder and the product owner primarily, they give direction that the, the developers know to which goals they are optimizing um, and that they know um, how to compare different options they have because they will then probably choose the one that helps most with their quality goals. So this gives the direction. And that's how at least I see how we could split the, the, the work um, of, of architecture, making architecture decisions within a scrum team and probably more to the technical side. I leave it uh, to Peter to go into this in more detail. And I, I don't really want to go into much detail because um, it, it should be something um, simple to get us started. Um, so it, I, I always compare things to other things. So if I would if, if I would ask someone who is really good at uh, at running marathons, if I would ask them to to give me give me some advice to how to run my first marathon, and they come up with a with a twenty something pages long training plan, uh, I would most probably not get started. And I think it can start with very simple conversations. Um, I think during backlog refinement, we should talk about quality goals. Uh, I, I like this uh, architecture quality attributes, I, I, I think, or quality requirements uh, that we sometimes hear uh, um, in architectural discussions. And, um, and maybe explicitly from a development team's perspective, ask, okay, what is important, not from a functional, but from a qualitative aspect uh, regarding this requirement? And then take maybe only five minutes to think about, is this something where we have to make an important decision, a decision that is hard to change, that is costly to change, um, and then give it some time um, to, to uh, and maybe, maybe 10 minutes of discussion is enough. Um, or uh, use, um, use the daily scrum explicitly to talk about things that are currently high risk, high, high cost of change. Um, maybe also um, something that Kurt you described or you proposed at the very beginning of, uh, of today's uh, session, uh, which is putting architectural work on the product backlog. In my opinion, if, there, if it is something that has to be done, um, it should be on the product backlog. It's, it's, it's also a misconception that many teams have that everything on the product backlog always has to be from a, from a functional, from a user's perspective. I disagree. The product backlog contains all the work that needs to be done for the for the product. And if architectural work is the work that, that needs to be done, we, we should put it on the product backlog. Um, and and I think with these small things and and with these small, let's say, um, reminders 
of where to focus on architectural decisions. I think it becomes a habit. And then um, uh, architecture becomes more natural to everyone on the team. Um, and what I realize in the teams that I work with, and currently I'm working with a development team that is quite junior, but um, they are making all the decisions on architecture. I guide them a bit. I, I give them advice. I mentor them, uh, you can say, uh, but I do not decide because I'm not the architect. They are the developers of this team um, and they grow very, very fast. Um, and, and, and this is something that I really like, that there does not have to be the architect. Uh, we, can, we can build that up like any other skill in the team as well. We can build that. I think that's, that, that, that's all spot on advice. Um, there were a couple of points in there that I think we can sort of pull out as a summary too of our talk. Um, one is that architecture is focused on decisions that it, it's fundamentally about the technical decisions that they, that are made about the product. Um, I think that one of the other things that we talked about earlier that are important is that exposing those decisions to the product owner and stakeholders ends up fostering some really interesting conversations. Um, so being explicit about we've made this decision, this is why we've made it, and, and these are the implications of it, and are you okay with that? Um, does that sound right to you? Um, that the other piece that was interesting in what you both talked about is that architecting isn't a role. It's, it's an activity that the team, primarily the developers on the team do, but that, that the team collectively does in order to solve or meet these quality goals. And so um, to me, it, it, that, that kind of viewpoint and starting simple is, it is really practical. Um, it doesn't require, you know, do lots of studying in order to do it. It, you know, you will learn by doing it. Um, and, you know, there's no reason to put it off. Um, you know, when, you know, I would say that my advice to, to a scrum team out there is that think about these things, talk about it when you're doing sprint planning the next time, talk about when you're doing refinement and, think about how you can start addressing the quality goals that you have for the product. And maybe the starting point might be just having the, you know, being explicit about the quality goals um, and then uh, fostering those discussions. So I, I think this has been, I, I know we're, we're running short on time and maybe we can have a follow-up uh, discussion sometime, but um, I want to thank both of you for taking the time today. It's, it's always interesting. Uh, to, to talk to both of you. And this is a, a topic I know that the three of us are really passionate about. And um, hopefully the listeners uh, are, are now passionate about it too, or at least uh, we've given you some things to, to take home and try and, and, and do on your own teams. So uh, I want to thank everybody. Um, tune in next time for the next uh, scrum.org community podcast for another interesting topic. But uh, anyway, thank you for this one. Thanks so much, Kurt. Thank you.